Let's dig in, because today we're talking about angels, and Jesus, of course. Jesus versus angels. And to start with, just your top five most famous angels. This is an unscientific list that I just thought of up the top of my head. Most five famous angels, Gabriel, Michael, Raphael, Clarence, and Charlie's, of course. <laughs> Who am I forgetting? Any? That, that seems to pretty much cover it. All right. The angel, oh, okay. We've got, we've got all of them there. So what is your understanding of who and what angels are? You just, what, what's something, when you think about angels, what's something that comes to mind? Say again? Okay, protector. And that was a theme in all of our stories here, for sure. What else? Okay, protector, yeah. White robes, wings. White robes, wings. Very good. Anything else? Heavenly beings. Say again? Heavenly beings. Heavenly beings. Yeah, court. Uh, in the Bible. Okay, in the Bible. Good. Good answer. I thought for sure you were going to say Leslie. I thought for sure Cord's <laughs> going for some points. And then when he said girls, I thought, oh, no. <laughs> but I hear what you're saying, Cord. Yes. Uh, it's a, a, kind of more of a feminine sort of messenger. That, that's protection. Right. Protection, yes, for sure. Yeah. yeah Warriors. Warriors. Oh, that's nice. Say, yeah. That's a less, less common picture, but that's very much a biblical picture. Yeah. I mean... You know, if you're just thinking culturally speaking, there's the, you know, like the little precious moments angels. All due respect to those of you who have your collection of precious moments. I know some of you do. Uh, but in the precious moment angel, what does the angel look like? It's always like this fat little baby, right? And that's just the, yeah. We, we, and we say cherubic. Oh, look, he's so cherubic as being this kind of sweet, pudgy little baby. But in the scripture, cherubs are not sweet, pudgy little babies. They're fearsome warriors, Right. I mean, you think of Isaiah chapter 6, with six wings he covered his face, six wings he covered his feet, with six wings he flew. Holy, holy, holy are the Lord God of hosts. And Isaiah says, oh, isn't that cute? <laughs> no siree. So, yeah, angels. So, we're, hold, hold that thought. Go ahead, Ellen. What? Oh, I, no, I was just going to say another thing about angels. Is that okay, go ahead. And demons, too? Yes, so we don't, it's not just, when we think about angels, we can't just think about the positives, but also the negatives, the fallen angels, the demons. Yeah, I'm just thinking how powerful an angel is, such as, uh, how many angels did God send to slay the Egyptians? Yes. Yeah, right. <laughs> how, 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 how many angels does it take? To, right, but no, that's, that's a good point. Yes, Andy. Were, were the angels created as creation? Good question. We'll get there momentarily. The question was, were angels created at the, at the creation? We'll talk about that. Because we're going to dig into Hebrews 1, starting with verse 5, to the end of the chapter, Lord willing, and um, see what the author, the preacher, has to say about angels, and especially in comparison with Jesus. So first, let me just read this whole section to us, and then we'll walk it back step by step. Starting with verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 1. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. 
Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they'll be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? All right. What stands out to you about this passage? What is it basically consistent? Quotations, right? This is just Old Testament quotations. The preacher himself has very few words, and they're mostly rhetorical questions that are just kind of sprinkled in, connecting all of these quotations from the Old Testament. And number one on your handout under where it says, kiss the sun, the preacher here presents a bouquet of Bible verses to establish how the sun is superior to angels. You see, this section is playing off of verse four. He concluded verse four by saying, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Four to which of the angels. And so starting with verse five now, the preacher is riffing off of this idea of the superiority of the son to the angels, right? And to do it, he gives what's the technical term for it is a florilegia, a florilegia. This is more than you need to know, but I think it's a lovely word. It means literally flower gathering, but it's, it's what you call a, a collection of different citations. Uh, the word anthology is basically the same thing. It means a bouquet. An anthology is like when you collect all of these choice selections and put them together. So it's like here the preacher has given us a Bible bouquet, a collection of verses from the Old Testament in order to establish the superiority of the Son over the angels. And then just gives it to us kind of rapid fire. First of all, in verse 5, there's two quotations. And here these quotations establish how God has promised and proclaimed that Jesus would be his Son. That first one comes from Psalm 2. Here's the larger context. Psalm 2 says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So this is a, a psalm. It, we get to be eavesdropping on the conversation between the father and the son. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. What's the today there? There's more than one answer to this, by the way. But when, when you hear, today I have begotten you, what, what, is your, what thoughts come to mind of when this conversation is taking place? Right now. Okay, right now. It's in the present tense. So he continues to come forth from the Father. It's an interesting thought. Yeah, Ann. Always? Always. So from the, from the foundation of the world, right? Before the foundation of the world, he came from the Father. What else? We do have extra sheets. Yeah, Amanda, would you mind? If you need a, a handout still, give a, a, a hand and Amanda will hook you up. Other times, you think of the incarnation, right? Jesus is coming into the world. And I think Psalm 2, if I'm not mistaken, is the appointed psalm for Christmas Day. And then the other time that it's connected with, this is in Acts and elsewhere in the New Testament, is with his resurrection, so again, at his resurrection, Jesus is proclaimed, we'll get to this more in a second, the firstborn from the dead. Today I have begotten you from the dead. All of that is kind of wrapped up. It's a very pregnant, pardon the pun, 
very pregnant um, quotation, citation there from Psalm 2. But then you also have the second one, I'll be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. This comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7. And this is a conversation between the Lord and, anybody know, 2 Samuel 7, one of the kings? If you just had to guess one of the kings, what would you guess? David, it is. It's a conversation between the Lord and David. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. And that word offspring is significant. It's a catchword and a connection back to Genesis chapter 3, when God had given what we call the proto-euangelion, the first promise, go along with the sermon there, the first promise of the gospel, which was made to Eve when he says, or maybe it's is it spoken to the spoken to the serpent, um, that you will, you will crush his head and one of your offspring comes after you. He will crush, he will crush your head and you shall bite his heel. It is, it's to the serpent. Yeah. What's that? Bruce. Bruce? Bruise. Bruise. Oh, bruise. Yeah, know? the translations vary. Sometimes it's bruise, sometimes it's crush. Um, but that's Genesis 3.15. Um, speaks of the zera, the offspring, the seed. Okay, so there's that connection there. I'll raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Isn't that interesting? His kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So in the context of 2 Samuel 7, you can hear that simply as God's promise that he's going to continue the monarchy. Um, that after David will come his son Solomon and, and the Lord will perpetuate that, that um, reign, that uh, kingship. But more fully, we see it as a promise and a prophecy of what God is going to do through the son of David, the Messiah, our Lord Jesus. Okay. Yeah, Leslie. I find that interesting where it says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son rather than I will be to him like a father. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's stated, I'm not going to say unequivocally, but pretty clearly. I, this is not just metaphorical. I will be his father. He will be my son. And the, the Hebrew tense there suggests, it's translated in a future tense, but it's, it can be present tense as well. You know, I am his father. He is my son. There aren't any pronouns in Hebrew. There are pronouns in Hebrew. There, yeah. But it's like when you're going a or he. Yeah. Or, yeah, his. That, that's just an interpretation. Yes, exactly. That's right. Yep, that's right. So right out of the gate, uh, the preacher of Hebrews wants to establish the sonship of Jesus. To which of the angels did God ever say this? Rhetorical question, the assumed answer is? None angels, right? None, none angels ever received such an exalted claim, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And so what does this mean for us? Well, later on in Psalm 2, it gives us the upshot. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's a summons for us to submit to and bow down, to lay prostrate before the son. And in that sense, we have a nice connection then to the next verse. Because verse 6 says, again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him or lay prostrate, bow down before him. So just as we bow down in order to kiss the son's feet, we are put on, on the level with angels. 
and vice versa. The angels are on the level with us. We are together submitting to, prostrating before the Savior. You with me? In these subsequent verses, verses 6 through 13, uh, G, there's, the preacher presents a series of contrasts between angels and Jesus. And I just want to note, because I was proud of this, the subheading for this section, that Jesus was no angel. I just want to make sure that you guys saw that. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> so in, uh, <laughs> in these verses, we have a series of contrasts. Pastor, where's your table? Don't worry. It's up ahead more as a, a summary. The first contrast in comparison that's made is the angels then are the worshipers, but the firstborn is the one who is adored. When he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Okay, again, the firstborn, again, is Jesus. Jesus is the, the firstborn of all creation. The prototokos is the, the Greek word. And this shows up more often than you would think in the, in the scriptures. To give just one example from Romans 8. For those whom he foreknew, that is, God the Father, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. So when you think about the significance of Jesus being called the firstborn, what comes along with that? If he's the firstborn, what are some things that that suggests? Heir. Okay, the heir. We talked about that a little bit last week, and we'll come back again momentarily. So he's the heir. He's the firstborn. What else does that suggest? If there's Jesus, more There's more coming. That's right. He's the firstborn of many brothers. God's raising up a whole family, which, as he had promised to Abraham, will comprise all the families of the earth, the blessing will go out to them. Yeah. Anything else about that firstborn that suggests? Yeah, man. Priestly uh, role. Sure. So the uh, uh, priestly role, going back again to those connections with Leviticus that out of the, the Levite families, so, so that kind of priestly role, and certainly the preacher is going to make hay with that connection in many ways. Anything else? Firstborn? And of course, for us fellow firstborns, we can say it means that he's the best. <laughs> oh, no, so, just kidding, just kidding. It takes a firstborn to say something like that, right? Yeah. I was going to say, you're yeah. the practice one. You're the, uh, you're the practice one, that's right. We're the beta. We're the beta, we're the beta one. Yeah, with all due respect, Sam. Yeah. We, we practice on you, and then we'll figure it out, hopefully, if there's other kids. Um, yeah. So all of these things, except perhaps for the last part, is there when we talk about Jesus being the firstborn. And Colossians 1 also picks up on this when it says he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 really just go really naturally together. We've seen those connections before. We'll see other ones yet. He's the firstborn from the dead. First one, first one that the grave gave up, which again means there's more coming. There's more coming. Yeah, Bob. What about Lazarus? Oh, but why wasn't Lazarus the firstborn from the dead? That's a good question. Um, because we make a distinction, and maybe this is one of those overly subtle distinctions, between resuscitation and resurrection. Okay? So a resuscitation means you get brought back to life. Not unlike the kind of stories that I alluded to in the sermon, right? Where there you think of um, the guy 90 minutes in heaven or the little boy, the heaven is for real boy. These were kind of resuscitations because, like Lazarus, they're going to die again, right? It was a temporary sort of thing. Whereas a resurrection, when you come back, 
I mean, just a couple of things about the resurrection. When you come back, having, having been risen from the dead, you'll never die again. Right? Jesus comes back indestructible, incorruptible, imperishable. And not only that, as I always tell the confirmation kids, Jesus comes back not as a zombie, right? They don't see him and they're like, oh gosh, Jesus, you doing okay there? He's in his glorified body, right? Uh, whereas Lazarus, when, when Lazarus comes back from the grave, what's the great concern of the disciples? Stinks. Bro stinks, all right? Get this man some deodorant, ASAP. Been in the grave four days. Um, whereas in the resurrected body, you smell of roses. Uh, that's pious conjecture, but you will not stink it. So, yes, um, good, good question, Bob. Other follow-up or questions with that? Cool. I'll go ahead. I have one in just in general of this whole chapter. Why is it so important uh. that the writers of Hebrews puts this first and foremost? Yes. Uh, why is yes? The, why is this so important? Why is he leading with this? Right, because of the the, the angel worship within the Jewish community. Or? We'll come back to it. It's a okay. it's a great question. We'll come back to it. All right, number two or number three on the handout. Angels are fleeting, but by contrast, Jesus is eternal. Angels are fleeting, but Jesus is eternal. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, get this, you guys, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. This is God speaking, but now he is addressing this to Jesus as God. I mean, it's one of these things you can read this and just kind of blow right past it, but don't miss what's happening here. The, of the Son, of the Son, He, God the Father, says, Your throne, O God. This is God addressing the Son as God. This is very, very significant when we think about how the New Testament teaches the divinity of Jesus. Uh, there's many places in which um, the, the evidence is more circumstantial, if you will. Uh, but there are verses like this where it is just unequivocal and explicit. Another one, i just give you one other example here from Romans 9, 5. Uh, to them, that is the Jews, belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So, uh, I mean, this is what the Nicene Creed picks up. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, right? Jesus is not to be in, uh, on a, a lower plane with the Father. Although within the, the persons of the Trinity, the Father is preeminent in a sense. But uh, he is not a creature. He is not a creation. He is God of God, light of light. You with me? I mean, there's some of these things with the Trinity. How do I wrap my mind around it? You don't have to understand the mechanics of the Trinity for us to profess and to confess that Jesus is God. Like, what, somebody asks you, how does the Trinity work? The Father's God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. There's uh, that old diagram. It's in um, some churches in their um, stained glass where it would have, uh, in Latin, just to make it especially fancy, you know, you would have deus in the middle, God. And then coming out like spokes from a wheel, you would have est, 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 is. And then on one side it would say, you know, the son is God. And then on another one, the spirit is God. And the father is God. And then outside on the wheel, it would say es neat. No, it wouldn't say German. It would say non est. Don't ask. Uh, is not. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. That, in a very simple way, encapsulates what we're, what we're saying here. Okay. 
So these ain't, go ahead, Janet. Well, if they talk so much about Jesus being begotten of the Father, mm -hmm. they totally left out the Spirit. Right, so where's the spirit fit into that of Jesus being begotten of the Father? We mentioned this last week, how there were, to my knowledge, there were no heresies that were binatarian. I'm sure they existed. Um, but the spirit is kind of presupposed, and we have it again in the creed, that the spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, with the Father and the Son is glorified. Um, but uh, that was also where the Eastern Church and the Western Church had a fissure. That's for another, another day. But um, yeah, what's presupposed is the spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Yeah, good. So, uh, in contrast the, to the eternity of the Son, from all time to all time, the one who was and who is and who is to come, as it says in Revelation, you have the angels. And Thomas Long puts this nicely. He says, like the wind, angels exert force, but then vaporize. Like flames, they burn with power, but then flicker out. He just, I don't think he means to say that they're just um, kind of like zoom flaming out but just picking up on that imagery of from verse 7 he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire they're, they're temporary or they're time bound but maybe put it that way whereas the spirit or uh, the son is eternal okay yeah go ahead ellen the angels don't die the angels don't angels don't die but I, yeah, I, I, I'm, I, I struggle with this. I don't have a good answer to this because it seems like they can be annihilated. Um, I mean, you see this sort of thing in, in Revelation, but I, I really can't say for, for certain. But they're not, the key point is whether or not they have an end, they have a beginning. Yes. And that's the, that's the key point. And that gets to number four then on the handout. Angels are creatures, but Jesus is the creator. Um, see, I think there can be this mistaken idea that um, if we were to just do a simple kind of, okay, on one side we've got the creator, and on the other side we've got the creature, okay? So God the Father is on the side of creator. Humans are on the side of, of creature. You know, Jesus is on the side of creator. Animals are on the side of, of creature. But then where do angels fit in? On which side, the left or the right side, would you put angels? Now, see, I, I think intuitively we might think, well, should they be on the creator side no. because they're more spiritual? Nope. But in point of fact, what and what he, the preacher was trying to make the point in Hebrews is that the angels are creatures. They are creatures of God, no less than our humans and animals and squiggly things and creepy crawly things and all the rest. This, this to me, when I, I first kind of wrapped my mind around that, kind of blew, blew my mind because I thought, okay, but they're spiritual beings. That's not the distinction here. The distinction is creator and creature. That's the more fundamental distinction rather than spiritual and material or something like that. Okay? And so when, Sandy raised the question, when were the angels created? Answer, we don't know. Okay? Uh, but I think that there is um, a suggestion. It's before, it's before humans. Okay? Um, because uh, it's the angels that are leading the, the humans into sin. There is a suggestion in Genesis 2, well, this doesn't give us a, a firm time, but it just says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all their hosts. Now, all their hosts, Sabaoth, um, is a reference to, an allusion to, the heavenly hosts. Well, it, it's not explicit, but in all likelihood, it's referring to the heavenly hosts, the angelic beings, okay? So they're there at some point, 
but it doesn't make it explicit on the third day or the fourth day God made the angels. It's just at some point in the beginning. And in Job, there's some similar sorts of allusions in that great diatribe from God in chapters 38 and 39. You know, all the, the angels were there, the sons of God, which is another word for angels, were there when, you know, calling forth into being. So they were there at some point during creation. At what point? Can't say for certain. All right, I know that I saw some hands or some, at least some furrowed brows. So yeah, go ahead, Bill. It, it seems as though the way this is building, that angels uh, are temporal. Yes. In, in other words, they're, they're, they're there as needed, Yeah. which fits the flame out. Yeah. Uh, they're not creatures in the sense that they have a birth and a death. Well, they have a birth. Well, okay. But I mean, they don't have a mother. They have a creation, a creation day, a born-on date, if you will. Created as needed. Yeah. If you will. Mm -hmm. There's a handyman somewhere that mm. takes orders. I'll take 150 angels, please. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And Angel Corp. They're, they're created. They're used, and then they. And then they're dispensed with. It could be. It could be. I can't say that for certain. Right. But that's that's a one way of, of thinking about it, perhaps. And I think you could look at this text and say that seems to be what it's suggesting that they're kind of ad hoc creatures Not personally, yeah there are fallen angels yes who keeps stubbornly sticking around yeah they they, <laughs> they did not perish right they're okay right and this is where i'm like so do do they die can they be annihilated or do they hang around they you know take up sides with the evil one i mean Paradise Lost, John Milton does the best with all this. If, you, if, you, if you're like, I'd really like some more backstory on this. Um, it's a fictional, but he has a lot of stuff in there that I'm like, hmm, that makes sense uh, how he does it. Our word pandemonium comes from that, means literally all of the demons. Pan, all, daimonium, all of the demons. And so he has some really cool kind of stuff in there, but we just, we just don't know. I don't want to say more than we can say for sure. Yeah, Ann. This is all interesting but I think what the Bible points us back to again and again is, is to Jesus and not to get distracted by these this much stuff. Bingo, bango, bongo. Yes, so we, uh, these are all interesting questions and fascinating stuff, and I think it's, it's right for us to wonder. I think it's perfectly appropriate, but we don't want to, to lose the main thing, right? We want to we keep the thread. And this is where, again, angels, they're creatures. When were they made? How were they made? How does that work? We can't say for certain. The main point that the preacher wants to bring across is that they're creatures, and Jesus, conversely, is the creator. Again, from Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All right? Spiritual beings, material beings, doesn't matter. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities... All things were created through him and for him. One last contrast suggested in verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 1, which says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Bible trivia here for you. The most cited, quoted, or alluded to verse from the Old Testament in the New Testament is this one right here. Psalm 110. Uh, maybe not this specific verse, but that psalm. Psalm 110 is the most cited from and alluded to passage from the Old Testament. Uh, again and again and again, and more than once here in, in Hebrews. 
to sit at my, to which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Again, the answer is to none angels. But he has said that to his son. His son now occupies that throne with him. It's big enough for the, for the father and the son who sits at his right hand. And we see this image in Revelation 5 when it says, I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature, no well, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. We have this vision then of Jesus is the one who sits on the throne. He's the one who is ultimately in charge. The angels are not masters. They're servants. They're servants of the most high God or they're servants of the most low Satan. Hmm. That's kind of how, how it works. Yeah, David. Well, this is really important too because the new age sure. kind of yeah. movement that has given so much power to angels yeah. or, you know, or demons as the case yes. may be. Yeah. It, just, it, it seems like um, to reiterate yeah. it's all Jesus. It's all Jesus. And, oh man, we could go deep into this. We're not going to do this today. But I mean, you just think about all the ways in which there's just confusion and deception within our culture, within our society. And people will play with stuff. And scripture makes clear, like, you may well be messing with, with I mean, the uh, devil masquerades as an angel of light. Be careful, right? Be careful. He talk, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians when he says that they're communing with demons. He talks about uh, this kind of um, false, almost a, a substitute sort of holy communion. Um, with food sacrificed to idols. Be careful. Um, and so it's, yeah, they're out there. Um, yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's a good point. All right, so just to encapsulate that section then, Jesus has given us access to God by means of his divine name so that now we can approach the Father, as Luther puts it in the small catechism, with all boldness and confidence and ask him as dear children ask their dear father. See? We're able to have that kind of access to come before him, uh, you know, to, to put the father, you know, in, in a kind of headlock the way that my daughter did to me, as I said in the sermon, <laughs> say, make your promise true. God has given us that kind of access and that sort of status before him through his son, Jesus. And there's your table summarizing what we've just talking about, talked about there. All right. What are angels then? And verse 14 gives the most succinct, simple definition in the scriptures of what angels are. Three parts. First of all, angels are ministering spirits. And the, the word there for ministering is leitorgica. Leitorgica, literally liturgizing. Okay, we get our word liturgy from this root as well. It's used in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Exodus and Leviticus, speaking of how Aaron and the priests, when he ministers, when he liturgizes, uh, it shall be worn on him, talking about the, the vestments, or maybe the urum and thumim, um, so that he doesn't die. Okay? Um, so these are ministering spirits, but it also suggests that, again, that kind of worshipful side of it, almost a priestly role that the angels have. They're ministering spirits. And then number two, they're ministering spirits. What are they? They're commissioned by God to serve. Commissioned by God to serve. The word for commissioned 
is the Greek apostello, or apostello, apostelomena, sent out like an apostle, right? Repeatedly, continually, it's a present tense that you just picture, you know, kind of God, I, I kind of um, picture uh, like a, a big bomber jet or something. And you've got all of the, the guys in parachutes, all the soldiers in parachutes, right? And there's the fathers, kind of gets to Bill's image as well. Like, all right, go, go, go. Shoving the angels out of the plane. And there they go. Uh, commissioned to, to serve. That's their job. Psalm 34, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. That's your job. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, there's that word again, his ministers who do his will. And so they are ministering spirits commissioned by God to serve for the benefit of God's heirs, or as it says here, those to inherit salvation. And I was thinking more about um, Hans's question last week about inheritance and heirs. And, you know, usually to receive an inheritance means somebody has to die. And so I was digging into this a little bit more. And the word for um, inheritance and an heir, it comes from the Greek, so kleronomen is the word. It comes from kleros or lots. And so originally, um, inheritance was apportioned by lot, by casting lots, right? Imagine how that would go in the family, right? Um, you, would, you would cast lots, and however the lot comes up, then it would go to the, to the heir. And so it didn't essentially, originally, have this connection of the, the death side of it. Um, so does that mean that God gambles to see, all right, who's in, who's out? No, again, in both cases, I think it's just a, a case of pushing the analogy too far. But I just bring that up to say, you know, it, the word has other associations and connotations. Yeah, Anne. Were not lots understood to be directed yeah. by divinity? Yes. And so Anne's question, weren't the lots understood to be directed by God and so under his influence? Like by chance. Right. Exactly. No, it's not by chance. It's by, yep. No, I mean... We could do a whole Bible study on the value of lots and whether we ought to be incorporating them more into our voters' meetings, but we'll save that for another day. But I, I want to, to point this out, too, that they're commissioned by God to serve for the benefit of God's heirs. Matthew 18, this beautiful verse. Jesus says, See that you don't despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. The idea of guardian angels probably traces back to this verse as much as any. Seems appropriate to me. There are angels assigned to you, always seeing the Father's face in heaven, looking after you. And you guys can think of times in your life when, if I didn't have a guardian angel watching over me, you say that sort of thing all the time. But the bottom line here, and what the preacher wants to make clear, angels are good gifts of God. Thank the Lord for them. But they're not a replacement for God. And sometimes there's this sort of pop spirituality that almost puts angels in the place of God. And I can't help but think that it can be like an end run to try and avoid, like, okay, God seems really intimidating. Angels seem a little bit nicer. So let's just talk about angels and so forth in that kind of new age sense, as David alluded to. Whereas don't, don't treat angels that way. Angels don't want to be treated that way. This comes up in Revelation. You know, a couple times John sees the angel and he bows down to them. And the angel has to grab him by the scruff of the neck and say, you doofus, no, worship God, not me. I'm just here. I'm, a, I'm another servant. I'm a gift of God for you, but I'm not a replacement for God. Okay. All right, so let's conclude with this. And Hans asked the question, why all the fuss? Why does the preacher go to all this fuss 
to demonstrate Jesus' superiority over angels? Why start this sermon this way? Well, a couple of answers could be given. One is that the hearers then, like any of us, were fascinated by angels. And so it's a good trick to get them interested, right? It's like, you know, anytime the preacher starts with a story to get, to get things going, like, all right, I just got to get their attention. What's going to do it? Angels. All right, we'll talk about angels. Could be, I don't think that's what it is. So then a second answer, and Hans alluded to this, is that the hearers were theologically confused about angels and perhaps even worshipped them, like St. John, again, was tempted to do. And there's some support for this in Colossians 2, when St. Paul says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions. So this sort of thing was out there. That could be in the background here. We can't say for certain. But one argument against that is the fact that after this discussion of angels, the preacher just drops it. He doesn't circle back to it. He doesn't harp on it. <laughs> Pardon the pun. Um, <clears throat> Um, but he leaves it behind. And so while I think there might be a piece to that, I think most profoundly and importantly is the third answer given here, that the hearers, wearied and disheartened by persecutions, by the difficulties of following Jesus in a contrary world, they find too little glory in Jesus. They hear all about Jesus, his, his crucifixion, his suffering, how he's died for them, and they're thinking, we need a more robust savior. <clears throat> this isn't cutting it as we are struggling and striving to follow after him. And the preacher in Hebrews, what he's trying to do more than anything else is to exhort and to encourage his hearers to endure, to hold fast to their confession of faith. That language will come up again and again and again. And it kind of climaxes in Hebrews 12 when he says, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Why all this fuss about the angels? Because as we look at the angels, it becomes a prism through which we are able to see and grasp more keenly the superiority of the Son. See, it's by, by looking at and, and focusing on the angels here at the beginning, it sets in stark relief how much greater and superior Christ Jesus is. And then finally, when we see and believe in Jesus for who he truly is, we can endure whatever challenges life in the world may hold. That's where the preacher wants to take his first hearers and us as we read and reflect on this book. That if Jesus is who he says he is, and he is, then come what may, we can trust in him. Amen? Amen. All right. Thanks very much, guys. We will pick it up with chapter two next week. Question.